The New South Wales government has just passed legislation that gives first home buyers purchasing properties for up to $1.5 million the option of paying a large amount of stamp duty when they buy or an annual land tax of a much smaller amount. What are the implications of this legislation and of each option? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Awards. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. Today, we're talking about the New South Wales government's first home buyer choice program, which gives most first home buyers the option of choosing between saving up another 5% or so on top of their deposit for stamp duty or committing to an annual land tax bill of a much smaller amount. What do you need to know before you choose your option? And that's the discussion topic for today. So let's kick off this discussion with explaining what each of these taxes are and how, how they're calculated. Chris, do you want to hit it? Well, I mean, I think this is an interesting uh, conversation. So as soon as we found out the legislation got passed, um, we've spoken about this a number of times on many episodes, you know, that this may happen and the, the confidence that may be attached to it that may come into the market. But that didn't mean that it was going to happen. And I guess when we I found out on Thursday, we, we were both on the phone to each other on Friday and say, let's get this booked in. And we're doing this, you know, the Monday straight after it happens. And I guess today, yes, we can talk about, you know, the options and things like that. But I think the, the real interesting thing to discuss is really how does this really change things? You know, what's the behaviors that may change? How does it change people's attitudes? Does it bring new buyers into the market? Does it, you know, et cetera? I mean, fundamentally, it's really just a... Uh, cost to benefit really or this option versus that option which one's going to be more favorable to first home buyers um, that are buying under 1.5 million right and so and that's a big change because old policy was you could get stamped no stamp duty up to 650 and then it went tiered up to say 800 but really if you bought it say 770 or 780 you didn't get much stamp duty savings right so it was really under 650 700 where you got um, no stamp duty so this is a massive change in their policy you know most first-home buyers would be buying under $1.5 million. So most first-home buyers are now eligible for something they weren't eligible for yesterday. Um, and the savings could be huge, you know, because, um, you know, at the moment, you know, a good way to think about it, stamp duty might be, you know, 4 to 5% of your purchase price. Like that's a really easy number for most people to think about. Um, so if you're buying something at a, a million dollars, your stamp duty is probably forty to $50,000, right, somewhere in that range. Um which is a huge amount to save. And, and so what the state government's now saying is, well, instead of paying that as a big lump up fee locked in, you'll never see that money ever again, um, you can pay a land tax every year. And, you know, even if that was a, an, a line ball, whether it was better to go land tax or whether to go stamp duty on a dollar for dollar, you would always probably go for the, the land tax because you're locking, you're not locking in a huge amount or having to get stuck in a property forever. Um, and I, I think that's... You know, we can talk about the actual numbers per se, but I think that's the overall arching um, theme of this episode is to talk through, you know, more the behaviours of, of how this may change the market. 
if you do want to get into the nitty gritty of really how to calculate your um, the options for you and the best alternative for you, then check out episode 98 of your first home buyer guide because Megan and I did go through that and went through a number of scenarios. But uh, firstly, I think what's important that we need to understand is the stamp duty versus land tax and how they're calculated and, you know, and how they're paid. And obviously the stamp duty, as Chris was just saying, is a one-off lump sum at the beginning of your purchasing journey, if you like, or when you buy that property. It's roughly between 4 and 5% of the property's purchase price. Now, land tax, however, is calculated on the value of the unimproved land. And so what that means is that if the value of general, general has determined what that block of land is that your house is on, or the block of land that the block of apartments is on or townhouses on that you uh, own, and what proportion of that, if it's strata, is attributed to you? So what, how much of that do you own? And so this whole land tax thing is going to be interesting because whereas everybody paid stamp duty roughly the same percentage, with the land tax, people buying apartments are going to be paying a lot less than somebody buying a house because of the, the, the way it's, it's calculated. And it's also calculated on something that's not sort of commonly known. Like you have to go hunting to find out what the land value is. Yeah. And it could change. It will change over the ownership of your, uh, you know, the time that you own that property as well. So it's not going to be fixed to whatever it is at day one. But as I said, we go into those scenarios a bit more detail in your first home buyer guide. But I thought just even just conceptually, it's interesting that they're both determined from different points of, um, you know, the actual price that they're determined from are different. And I even found that to be quite interesting because supposedly the state government yeah. wants to reform stamp duty and get rid of it for a broad-based land tax. And I just can't understand how this policy helps them do that because it's actually not to be handed on to subsequent owners of a property. Like it doesn't even make sense to me. Yeah, I think you're right. It's interesting. Like you pay stamps due on the purchase price, but you pay land tax on the unimproved land value, which is usually very conservative, the numbers the value general will use. You know, you could type in your own property and um, if you could buy your land for that price, absolutely you would. Um, it's it's they, The reason they would have to put it lower is because if it was more than you thought, you'd be arguing, you'd be contesting it and they'd be you know, dealing with complaints and revaluations and et cetera. So it is, you know, massively under. I've looked at a few properties this morning and, you know, there's there's a state government website as well that we can put in the show links that you can type your address in and it'll show you the land value. Mm. Or any property that you're purchasing as well. You can go and um, just do a search, find out what the land value is. And, you know, what it sort of is, is like $400 a year plus 0.3% of that land value. So if the land value is worth a million dollars, I'm just pulling random numbers, that's three grand a year plus 400, so 3,400, um, you know, a year. But if that land is worth a million dollars to the value of general, it's probably worth double that in the marketplace, you know, like it's, it's and then you've got the house on top of it. It's probably a $2 million plus property, this, and the stamp duty on that would probably be over a hundred grand. So, you know, I think you could do these numbers and it pretty much, unless it is your forever home, which you never know, and that's the thing, you know, you might think it is, but things change. There are families, you know, more kids, um, work, different opportunities, different relationships. Um, 
and you know just different desires as you change and get older and so a lot of people think it's their forever home and then you know three years later they're selling it and i think that it'd be a gutsy move to pay stamp duty as a first-time buyer um because if typically that isn't your forever home right this is your step into the market this is your stepping stone and i think that's why um, you know, I think you'll find that, you know, 95% plus of the first home buyers opt for land tax. Um, you know, one of the things is they, you know, a lot of the arguments is, oh, we don't know what the land tax rate is going to be in the future and it might be higher. Yep, absolutely. But right now it's still a good bet under current, even if they up it. You know, it would still be a good bet, you know. Well, um, in many cases, like, and I literally compared real examples of properties that have recently sold and their actual land values. And in yep. many cases, you would be up for more than, you have to be there for well over 20 years yep. um, to to be worse off by taking the land tax option. Yeah, and that's assuming, like- and I've assumed, in, um, you know, price increases as well. So, you know. It's- yeah. And you probably haven't like, you know, there's other things. Like if you got given 50 grand to the state government or 50 grand into an investment portfolio and you invested that for the next 10 years or you use mm. that fifth and then you got the cap, the gains on that, which really it has to sort of get that money back. So there's other things about when you pay a lump sum to something versus paying ongoing and paying, it's, um, there's the opportunity cost on that money, et cetera. So I think the reality is though, there's, there's the, the, what you've done is you've reduced the deposit hurdle for first-home buyers from a minimum of roughly 15% of the purchase price at a minimum, 5% for stamp duty, 10% for the deposit for the bank and borrow the other 90, um, to a 10% deposit. So you've reduced it by a third. So if someone wants to buy, you know, let's say we're talking a million dollars to 1.5, someone wants to buy something at 1.2 million, you know, prior to Thursday, they needed 180,000, but on Friday, they only needed 120,000. And so let's say they've got eighty or ninety or a hundred thousand in the bank now, and they hear about this change, they go, "Wow, we're already very close to our mm. our goal here." And, and you know, there's seventeen thousand or eighteen thousand mortgage brokers in the country right now that do seventy percent plus loans. What do you think they're all doing? Um, they're going through their database. They're going to everyone who they've spoken to, or and they're going to be sending emails to them and newsletters. And what are you going to see from the banks um, and and the media around this? So. Um, absolutely, this is going to create a lot more buyers into the market because it's a total game changer for those first home buyers who haven't bought that um, you know now don't have to pay stamp duty. I think the other big thing that you know my big learning with this is that um, nothing's guaranteed here forever. You know the the Labor Party are, are odds on. I think they were looking at this morning about a dollar fifty to win the election. Um, the Liberals are like two dollars forty. So it's likely that they're going to win the election in March, considering though Trump was $7 and Brexit was $6 or something the night before the elections, uh, the referendum, et cetera. Um, we can't, you know, <laughs> think the odds are always right. But You're a brave man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So let's say that Labor do win that. They're saying that they're not going to go ahead with this. They're going to revoke it. They're going to repeal it. They're going to wind it back. Um, and that's in March and we're in November now and there's no stock on the market. So, like, this this may only be a short term thing, um, and that could that can that can play danger with you know lots of things if if you're acting under short term timeframes. So there's lots to think through on this this change. I think too, what's important to understand, as I keep sort of labouring this point, stamp duty it's it's a leveller in the sense that three people all paying a million dollars for property yep. are all going to pay the same stamp duty. Yeah. Um, whereas three people paying a million dollars to buy and where they can choose land tax rather than stamp duty, those three people are going to have three very different land tax bills 
If you think about it, two houses next to each other, same size block of land, same street, same aspect, same everything, right? But yeah. one's a McMansion and the other one's a really old bungalow that needs to be demolished. Land tax is going to be the same. The cost to buy those properties is totally different. The, the person paying a million dollars for an apartment versus a person paying a million dollars for a house, as I mentioned earlier. So the actual working out your ongoing costs, um, it's just a little added complication in there, I guess, for purchases that they need to be very aware of. That with stamp duty, as I said, it was, it was across the board even-handed effectively. This is not so. Um, and even then you can get into arguments uh, with yourself effectively because, you know, you're really probably not going to win an argument with the value in general, but as to why one block of land is valued more than another. Yeah. Um, so that, that's something I think that's something to be to taken into account. The other thing to think about too is the impact on investors. So currently yeah. investors pay land tax if their uh, unimproved land value that they own uh, other than their own principal place of residence, is over a threshold. I think that threshold is currently 800 and... Yeah. It's actually higher than I thought it was, 880,000 or something, yeah. something in that vicinity anyway. Yeah. Now that changes too over time. Yeah. Um, so this... But that's this also is- for a couple. Like it's, So you could potentially, if you're a couple, mm. you get double the threshold. So you get $1.65 million of land in New South Wales you can have besides your home that can be growing without any land tax. So it's quite high, you know, that's, you know, as a, as a couple. But if you buy this and take this as an option, right, and your plan is to turn that into an investment property, you are stung. This is not a good option for a lot of people if they're thinking about doing that. I've done the numbers. As I said, I've looked on the, if you want to check some of the numbers that I've done on your first home buyer guide, episode 98, as I mentioned, um, but yeah, that that land tax ramps up substantially. Now there's still a threshold. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. But you previously, as a owner occupier, didn't have to pay any land tax. And if you currently, if you buy a property and then rent vest, right, you're not up for land tax as long as you don't own uh, property over that. Uh, with an unimproved land yeah. value over that threshold. But that's going to tip you over the threshold from day one that you turn that from being owner-occupied to being an investment, and it goes up from that 0.3% per $100,000 or whatever it is. Um, the calculation, the actual rate of calculation is significantly higher. So there's a little – that's something I think to be really mindful of for people thinking long-term. They could get really caught out by that. Yeah, it's interesting. We had a conversation with a client on uh, Friday. It was um, so catch twenty two for them, right? So they've got enough. They've got you know way more than twenty percent deposit, and they could afford stamp duty, right? There's no problems for them, and they want to buy a sub one point five in New South Wales. Um, and so for them, this isn't really great news, right? Um, because you know on Thursday they had a much smaller amount of competition, and on fr- then on Friday. Because all of a sudden, all these new buyers are going to be able to enter. And buyers can enter instantaneously. This is the thing with with demand and supply. Demand can increase pretty much overnight. You can call up your bank, call up your broker, wake up in the morning and think, right, I actually want to start to buy a property, my first home or an investment property, and get ready. Supply can take many months, right? And so all of a sudden, you've got this. Um, yeah, because even if an investor said, oh, wow, there's a stamp duty change, maybe I should sell my place. Well, they've got to get a tenant out, they've got to style it, they've got to fix it up. So it's going to take them many months, they've got to pick an agent um, to hit the market, whereas demand could enter instantaneously. So I would say that they're the ones who are probably, you know, because they pr- can afford stamp duty, um, 
but now all of a sudden they've got more competition in low stock because we're in November, right? You know, it's very dangerous to list your property right now over the next three to four weeks before Christmas because it could sit on the market for two or three months till February. Um, and so I think that's a really good point. For them as well, it was an interesting one because um, they may move overseas. Um, and so mm. that all of a sudden is the owner-occupier. Then they're going to maybe go move and live in London or wherever for a few years and then it becomes an investment property and their land tax jumps. Um, so I think that's a, that is a really good point because a lot of people do, consider, a lot of first-home buyers do make a strategy where they'll move into it for six months, you know, make it their principal place of residence, then move out, um, use the six-year um, principal place of residence exemption uh, and get it growing tax-free and then just rent vest it and rent something else. Um, and so, yeah, that's definitely something I can think that you've got to be careful with. Yeah. Um, I feel like I should tell, give a property dumbo right now. Do you want me to give you one? Yep, why not? So we jump in early with the property dumbo. This is myself, <laughs> and I don't know if I've told this story on this podcast before, but um, years and years and years ago, back in 2001, I bought a principal place of residence, and in the following year, I bought a an investment property. And in 2003, I think it was, I moved in with a partner, and it was his his property that we moved in. I moved into. So then I rented out my principal place of residence. So I had two properties rented out, and I then subsequently sold my principal place of residence in two thousand seven, I think it was. But anyway, well within the six years, and my accountant never once told me or mentioned the words land tax. You know, I knew about capital gains tax. I knew about lots of things. And this is obviously before I became a buyer's agent. I was a sales agent at the time. I really didn't spend any time learning about this stuff back then. Yeah. Um, And then I got this big land tax bill. That's three years worth of land tax all in one hit. I was incensed. I got onto the phone to the Office of State Revenue. Don't you realise I've got six years capital gains tax free? And I had a nice little lesson in difference between uh, a, a state-based tax and a, and a federal tax um, from the kind person on the end of the telephone who <laughs> very patiently explained to me I had no idea about this. And my accountant's attitude when I when I went back to him was very much, well, I don't have to, you know, you don't worry about land tax with the ATO and I'm just worried about tax in the ATO, like shockingly bad um, accountant. So don't ever go to one that would be so cavalier. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I ended up, I did get a, um, I, I got a, I get, what, what did I get? I get, because there was these penalty um, rates in there as well. I've been penalised in this bill because for three years I hadn't declared. So I claimed ignorance and they were very kind to me and I did actually get all the penalties revoked. Um, so I still had to pay the land tax. But, yeah, that was a very rude shock to me that I had no concept that I was up for land tax. Now, I think in this regime, I think that, you know, there could be people with that same rude shock coming up. So that, that's, <laughs> I know that feeling. Yeah, I mean, it's um, definitely can easily catch you out. It's a good problem to have land tax, though. It means you've got a certain amount of land above mm. a threshold. It's so it's one of those tax where you go, uh, and I guess mm, the key thing to remember know. is is, is your owner to... occupier is um, you know is free of land tax when you're not living when you are living in it, and so it is something you need to think through when you are switching from a home to renting out a home to do a calculation on land tax and see if you are over a threshold. Um, because you're right, a big bill. I think one of the interesting oh, yeah. things, this, this land tax, um, I was reading the FAQs on the 
New South Wales government website. And it's so funny. One of them's like, if I cannot afford to pay property tax, will they be forced to sell my home? I said, no, nobody will ever be required to sell their home to meet property tax liabilities. Um, if you can't afford it, you just wait till your situation improves or when the property's sold. It's like, uh, yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> Liabilities sitting on the government's books for some time yeah. with some people. <laughs> well, that's right. It's very, um, yeah, we're not going to, you know, force people to, to pay off their, their their tax. I thought that was a pretty relaxed. I think the other thing to remember is <laughs> the advantage right now is that you still need to pay the capital gain, uh, the stamp duty between now and January. Um, so middle of November now. So the next two months, if you buy a property under 1.5, you still pay the stamp duty, but you can get it refunded. Now, some people can potentially say, well, if I know I'm going to get that money back, I can go and ask family for it for three months, mm. right, to like get it refunded. Some people have not got that that luxury, right? Um, so if you are in that position where, you know, you are thinking about entering the market but you can only get to a 10% deposit, well, maybe that's the time where you do lean on, you know, potentially other type of short-term way to get the money and then refund them. Um, and I think the other thing you remember is it's a double whammy this. So in terms of savings, so let's say you've got um, – you know, $180,000 in cash now and you want to buy something at 1.2, well, you're not just going to save the $50,000, $60,000 of stamp duty. What you can also now do is reduce the lender's mortgage insurance dramatically because um, instead of putting that fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 to the state government for stamp duty, you now take out a much smaller loan. So $180,000 on a $1.2 million property means you could probably borrow at, you know, 85% rather than borrowing at 90%. So firstly, you save stamp duty, but you'll pay a massively um, reduced um, amount of uh, lenders' mortgage insurance, which it would have been wise of me to do that calculation prior to today, but I'll just quickly do it now. <laughs> um, so while Veronica says her next point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so you're, you're busy calculating away. Uh, I've got a question for you, Chris, if you can calculate yep. at the same time as hear the question. So if somebody has to buy today and pay the stamp duty and then put in a refund for an application for a refund and get it back early next year in January, um, I wonder if they could change their mind if they sort of sit down and really do the maths and think, oh, no, I'm actually going to one day be an investor. I, I think I'll keep that stamp duty paid. But the question for you is that, would that material right now? You still got to come up with the money, so you still got to cough it up somehow, whether it's a gift or a loan or whatever, right? After January sixteen, is it when it's all official? Um, yeah. What sort of difference will it make to somebody's borrowing capacity if they no longer have to f- stump up the stamp, the stamp duty? So we chatted about this with the other team on uh, a WhatsApp group that we've got on Friday, and we just chatted about it. I think you know absolutely it should inc- reduce borrowing capacities because you've. you've Borrowing capacity is reduced. So this going to a land tax option will reduce your borrowing capacity because it creates another expense ongoing. Um, But it's not massive. So Mm. it's not a huge, huge reduction. We've had 25 30% falls in borrowing capacity. This, I imagine, is probably going to be sub 5%. um, But it does. It does reduce borrowing capacities at a time when borrowing capacities are pretty tight. So, you know, that's – but we haven't heard any – you know, we haven't – this is all very fresh, right? So bank mm. policies will be talking about this right now. How are they going to, you know, update their? Because they've got to change all their documents. Um, oh, you know, gosh, yeah. Lawyers and solicitors will be freaking out, going, "Oh God, another change that we need to to factor in." Um, in terms of their uh, settlement and something they need to make sure they don't miss out on. Um, but as an example, there. So that that uh, saving I was talking about. So that person buying at one point two saves fifty thousand dollars in stamp duty. 
and then would save $15,000 in lender's mortgage insurance. Right. Um, because the mortgage insurance halves, you know, at, at 90% loan, it's like $28,000 a year and at 85% loan, it's like $14,000 a year, right? So it's a, it's a massive saving um, for that person who, you know, would have had $70,000 more costs last Thursday versus Friday. Um, and, you know, I think the interesting thing is now is that um, we're under a rental crisis. Um, you know, we, we know that rents are jumping in lots of places. You know, we've got migration really kicking off, you know, greater than probably people thought. Um, and, you know, when you encourage more first-home buyers to buy, yes, they may be renting before, so they may be opening up a rental property, but um, they might not be. They might be in flat share. They might be living at home, might be moving back from overseas. Um, you know, they might be living with family, et cetera. Um, and most likely, if, if you won't be investors playing in this market, investors have got very limited borrowing capacity right now um, because of how much the falls are. So there's very few investors in the market. Um, and so likely if a property sells between 1 and 1.5 and it was an investor that was owning it and they sell it to a first-home buyer, what you're going to do is make the rental market really even tighter <laughs> um, because that's one less property that would have sold. Another investor probably won't buy it in this market. Uh, it'll be a first-time buyer. So there's one less property for rent in that suburb. And so I think you're really going to see a tightening and a vacancy rates and a real pressure on rents even further um, because as soon as you support first-time buyers, you push out investors and then you create rental problems. And that's the sort of the second cause effect here. It's quite interesting though because when you look at higher interest rates, you know, typically in a in – a- yeah. In a, in a market environment where prices are falling, there's three groups of, of buyers that benefit, right? There's your first home buyers, usually. Yeah. Um, makes it easier to get into the market, supposedly, with falling prices. Uh, investors as well, because they're typically not spending large values, large um, amounts of money compared to upgraders yeah. and other yeah. owner-occupiers. Um, and and there becomes, you know, it creates opportunity for them. And thirdly, you've got your upgraders because your transaction cost for upgraders is reduced in a, in a falling yeah. market as opposed yeah. to a rising market. But when you've got rising interest rates, two of those groups really get knocked out. Like you said, the, you know, the investors are getting knocked out because they really just don't have as much um, access to as much money. Um, and first-home buyers are really hit, hit hard because probably of all the buyer groups, they're probably the most hardest hit in terms of borrowing capacity when interest rates fall because they, yep. they have the smallest amount of equity behind them. So you've got one segment of the market that really benefits from these market conditions and they are your upgraders, right? And so you've got this incentive, if you want to call it that, coming into the marketplace at a time when the very segment of the market it's aimed at helping has one of the, the hardest or probably the hardest hit from actual market prevailing market conditions. Um, so it will be interesting to see if it does have a material impact or not because you've got yeah. to still say, well, you know, if, it, if your borrowing capacity is, is impacted in any way negatively um, through this, even though you can get in the market quicker, you know, for those, for those buyers that um, – well, those borrowers that really sailing a bit close to the wind, you know, I, I guess the big question is how much will it really help them? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the the challenge with first-home buyers right now is that um, borrowing capacities have fallen a lot more than the properties mm. they really want to buy. Yes, um, absolutely. And it's a real, you know, so when they, we, we, we're redoing the numbers like for all our clients like constantly, it's, you know, um, and we're totally fine with that. We actually encourage it. We really want it. I mean, even today, I got a 
quite cool. I think about buying, right, let me just double check the numbers because, you know, mm. it's been a few months. And, you know, and if you don't buy now, another eight rise, this is how it affects you and this is how your repayments are going to be. And so it's like a lot of guidance and coaching around borrowing capacities because they've just fallen so much. Yep. But the reality is, um, you know, they might have want to buy something, I don't know, 1.4, let's call it, and their borrowing capacity, that's their maximum, um, has dropped and now they have to buy at 1.2. Well, the $1.4 million property has only dropped to 1.3. They're mm. being pushed out of that market. Um, and, you know, they're having to literally make offers that are at the absolute, you know, maximum and, you know, with very little buffers. So they're under a little bit of to, to get into the markets they really want to be. Um, and so I think that's the irony at the moment. You're right. First-time buyers are struggling. But there are the first-time buyers that um, are doing really well financially from an income point of view, let's call it. Um and are buying well, borrowing well within their borrowing capacity and what they want us, they could borrow in previous last year. So they're the ones who are, um, I guess, doing really well. I think the that irony right now is- It would have to be a small segment of the market though. Well, it, it would. it is because of just the cost of how much prices have gone up in the mm. last couple of years, you know, and how much borrowing capacity is the fallen though. That number's growing, you know. One in four borrowers were stretching to their maximum like in the in the height the last couple of years. But I would say it's even higher than that now because how much borrowing capacities have fallen and prices mm. haven't fallen as much. Um, but it must be weird. If you've got a property that's worth $1.6 right now, um, you, you must, and, you, you know, you know under 1.5 you're going to get heaps of competition. But then after 1.5, like no first-time buyer is going to want to buy it because if you had to pay 1.6, you would say, like if I pay one point, buy something at one point six, I've got to pay eighty thousand dollars of stamp duty plus lender's mortgage insurance. Mm. If I buy something at one point four nine zero, I save the stamp duty and I save a massive amount of lender's mortgage insurance. Um, I should probably buy under one point five. So you reduce your budget, and that. So I think you know, like if someone who has to pay stamp duty because they're not a first home buyer. Well, you don't really want to be buying under 1.5. If no. you can, you're probably going to find you're going to get, because you're going to be competing with first-time buyers who don't have to pay stamp duty. So you're probably going to find there's a much better sweet spot value for money, which you can find at any point in time in any market, mm. where if you've got a little bit more than your competition, i.e. 1.5, 10, um, then you're going to get better value for money. And so if, if you aren't a first-time buyer right now, you've got to be very careful playing in that sub 1.5 market because it's not probably going to be the best time to be buying. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? And look, you know, at the end of the day, that's the case all the time when you've got these thresholds. You know, they're, yeah. they're quite arbitrary sort of ceilings in, in, in marketplaces and create behaviour around, you know, just below and just un over these uh, these thresholds. Yeah. And we've seen it many, many, many times over the years. So it's going to be – but it's also quite an interesting one, this, because it's usually with first home buyers, the thresholds are quite low. Mm. Whereas you know, one point five million dollars is is a decent budget for first home buyer. You know, maybe not Absolutely. the middle of Sydney, but for most places, it's a good good chunk of money. I mean, when um they did the six fifty policy years ago, I mm. remember I did a post on LinkedIn. I was like, this is just silly, right? Like, this is not really solving the problem. Yeah, you might be solving the problem in regions like mm. back then, places like Newcastle or Wollongong or Central Coast, and um. But this is they did this way prior to COVID, um, and it just is never high enough to solve you know the first home buyer challenge in, in in Sydney. You know because people can't even get a we're only getting a studio or a one bed. They weren't able to get something they could live in longer term, for example, um, if they wanted to have a family. And so absolutely, this policy is um, probably quite generous to be honest. Like yeah. if it was like one point two or one point two five, you wouldn't say it was a silly price. Um, and so 
I just, I'm just a little bit like this window could be between now and March. Um, and you just got to be careful because if you do find a lot of buyers enter the market, you could easily see people overpaying because wounded bulls, you know, as a buyer, it's, it can happen pretty quick, right? Mm. Um, you fall in, lo in love with a property or you like a property, you make an offer and you miss out. And, you know, maybe you wait a few weeks to an auction. And so you spend three weeks thinking about where your furniture is going to go and you tell all your family and friends how excited you are and then you miss out. You don't want to go through that pain again. And so I would, you know, those first home buyers, um, you know, you just got to be a bit careful that all of a sudden there's this deadline. Maybe it's the election where you want to get in, you've missed out on one property. Um, I think you're going to start to see some erratic behaviour um, and people overpaying for poor assets just because of desperation. It's kind of like when people are trying to buy prior to their lease finishing. Yeah. Um, it's like we're like, no, 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 just release something and factor in a break cost because you'll be a, a, your brain will be free of worrying about whether you're going to be homeless or not and you'll be focusing on a quality asset. Um, I think that's what we may see early next year where, People are just trying to rush in a purchase prior to potentially, you know, a uh, government election, change. just so we can they can save, you know, the stamp duty. Yeah. It's an interesting one because I think we do have some um, some history in this state of uh, strange property tra taxes that uh, don't are short lived. Yeah. If you remember the vendor transfer tax, I think it was called, uh, back in the early noughties. And this was just, uh, I don't know how long it lasted, but it wasn't very long. And so an investor got stung with stamp duty on as they sold. So it was exit tax. Oh, and right. It was about 2% or something. It was, wasn't insignificant. And yeah, so talk about sort of constraining property coming onto the market, only those that really needed to sell sold. I was a sales agent at the time. So of course that made it difficult to get investors to be confident to actually sell their property because they got whacked with this extra bill on the way out. And it was oh, no. such a stupid tax and so unpopular that it didn't – I can't remember how long it lasted. I, mm. In my brain, I'm thinking six months, but it, it – it, I doubt it got to two years. Like it was within a very yeah. tight time frame. Um, so, and there was no refunds for those people that that <laughs> copped that tax. Sure, they would have got a tax deduction because they're investors, but they didn't get a refund. And so, it'd be quite interesting to have a handful of first home buyers in this state that might be—they're the only people paying land tax on their principal place of residence. If Labor get in, you know, for for however long they remain, they'll be this little grandfathered, funny little—you know—this thorn in the side of the government's treasure, treasury department. Going, oh God, they're one of those people. A bit like, um, <laughs> a bit like in New York when they got those those controlled yeah. apartments, the rental yeah. controls. Oh, they're one of those. So uh, you might end up having someone who manages to buy their forever home. <laughs> and that's paying. I, was, I so agree. Like, you know, you could easily see this unwound and then all of a sudden this goes off the table like for years and years and you've got this, I don't know, 50,000 properties that transacted in that three <laughs> months that are, are paying this land tax and it's a It wouldn't even be that ass. high. Yeah, because exactly. There's 100,000 yeah. on average, 100,000 first home buyers in this country per year, and it went up yeah. to 160,000, sort of a lot of COVID money yeah, and yeah. all the rest of it. So, and then that's not all in New South Wales. Yes, New yeah. South Wales is the biggest state in terms of this, but you know, that's not even half would be in New South Wales. And then you've only got three months of transacting. Yeah. Um, so it's sort of interesting. It'll be a handful in the whole in the whole scheme of things. And that's uh, why I went with um, is the Greens um, MP. I was reading about it last week, and I was like. Like, oh, I heard that this may not go ahead. The Greens are against it, you know, Labor against it. I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. So that's a bit of an And then all of a sudden it did go ahead. Past but, I mean, year. their argument was 
that this is stupid. Why would you put, bring this in right now, three months before an election? It just doesn't make sense. Like, because why don't we have the election? And then if you win, then yeah, absolutely, you know, get this policy through and actually have it stick around for at least three years. But, you know, um, that's not what happened. And um, yeah, it's very likely that that, that could happen. I mean, if it, if it does stick around, then long term, then this will absolutely have a huge impact on creating more buyers into the market. It brings mm. forward future demand. So instead of waiting five years to save your deposit, you need to wait three years, let's say. Um, or you, And there's this goal gradient effect. The closer you get to the goal, the more motivated you are. Mm. So, you know, and the FOMO effect, we all know how that effect plays to first-time buyers. And family will be like, oh, let's get you in on, on this. So absolutely, you'll bring forward future demand, like spending on a credit card to today. Um and, you know, we've already got a listings problem and a supply problem and um, that will absolutely support the market. And, and very quickly, I would say that prices will be way more than what the stamp duty was anyway, right? You'll pay 5% more for the property than you have to pay this land tax. So this, and it may help first-time buyers who want to buy in the next sort of three to five years, maybe, maybe that long, maybe not even that long. But this will not do anything for affordability in 10 years' time, Um it'll only create a bigger problem, right? And first-time buyers in 10 years' time will pay 20% more for the property when they could have just paid, you know, 5% more for stamp duty if they could afford it. But there is a, there is an argument, though, if you never could save that money for the stamp duty plus the deposit, then this is your ticket. Yes, you pay more for the property, but you actually got a property. And so that that is an argument. Yeah, it's, you pay more than 5%, but you own a property because you can borrow 90% on the property and you don't have to... Um, keep funding the higher prices. Well, you know, I guess we could finish up this um, episode just quickly touching on the idea that this is part of a bigger plan, right? So yeah. let's assume that, that Liberal could still get in again. Yeah. Um, we know they've been talking about abolishing, um, well, trying to abolish or phasing out an abolition of stamp duty in favour of a broad-based land tax. That, that's that been on the cards for some time, discussion point. ACT have already gone down that path. Um, and, and I would imagine other states and territories are going to be watching with interest to see how this plays out. Absolutely. But what they originally put forward was it was across the board as an option, but they've had to sort of, I guess, repackage it as helping first home buyers. Yeah. But this is where, because stamp duty generally is seen as in, inefficient tax, you know, because it's a one-off, because, you know, it's lumpy, whatever, whatever, whatever. You know, I don't buy into the argument with inefficient or otherwise. That's, that's um, seen by a lot of people in, in uh, positions of power that they do want to change it as part of tax reform, right? But yeah. the problem is that, that, this particular tax, so if somebody, some first home buyer buys today, takes the option of the land tax, you would think this would be a nice little sort of open door for the government to, to start saying, right, let's slowly start to change. This is a broad, broad change and we want to start it small. But it actually will not apply to subsequent purchases of the property. And this is why I really do not understand this as, as a policy because I know what their agenda is and yet this doesn't get them any closer to it or is it just a, an act of desensitising us to it? Yeah, I think you're right. I think the, the too much money, you know, um, the, the state government makes too much money of stamp duty straight away, hence why it, you know, it makes sense for the person paying stamp duty to go for land tax, right, mm. rather than giving it to the state government. So I think it's just too much money for them. To, and they did say in their initial policies that it wouldn't be for the top 20% of properties, um, you know, uh, that they wouldn't have to, they wouldn't be able to go to, to the land tax because it's just they make too much money. Um, 
But I think you're right. Like, I think it's just such a big change when they make, you know, 10 billion plus. I'm not exactly having checked the figures recently um, in revenue off stamp duty to make this shift to land tax um, is just so hard, you know, especially when we're in a higher interest rate environment, right? Um, debt's not as cheap. They've already gone into a lot of debt. Things, think about things like the metro and all the other roads. And transactions and, are down. I mean, yeah. listings are down something like 18% nationally. That's the real key thing, mm. I think, to remember. If the land tax was, the whole argument with land tax is you would, sell and buy more frequently mm. because you don't have to pay money to the state government and um, that would make the system fairer because you yeah. could buy a house more suited to your needs. Oh, I don't Takes need to buy friction out of it. Mm. Yeah, I'll buy, I'll sell this because I'm going to, oh, you have to pay agents, but I don't have to pay 5% to the government, right? And so I'll downsize and create all these transactions. Then they've, they've said that openly that they think transactions are going to increase 50%. Transactions are not good news for property affordability or housing affordability transactions are debt creating events when you usually sell generally speaking people are taking on more debt than they used to have and so you're creating more debt in the system and not many people besides some downsizers take money out of the system and put it into super and take on smaller loans etc vast majority is new money entering and hence why debt goes up every year you know um you know as a number so i'd just be a little bit cautious, you know, thinking this land tax thing is a great thing. Um, if you're worried about housing affordability, if you want prices to go up, then absolutely change it to land tax um, and you'll see the benefits. I'm on a personal mission to help more people make better property decisions. And you can find out all about what I'm working on at veronicamorgan.com.au. And there you'll find resources for first home buyers, details about my buyer's agent mentoring program, access to suburb help for investors, or if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or lower north shore, you can connect with my team at Good Deeds Property Buyers. And if you'd like a 30% discount plus free postage for my book, Auction Ready, How to Buy Property, Even Though You're Scared Shitless, and yes, I'm a potty mouth, use the code ELEPHANT at the checkout, veronicamorgan.com.au. If you're thinking about buying your first home, upgrading to a new one, or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, we would love to carefully guide you through this journey and importantly, get the finance right. Please reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Don't forget that you can download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.